Well, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to continue our study of fiery faith in this awesome, amazing book of 1 Peter. Oh, just a swig of that water. Mm, refreshed. Refreshed. How many of you, when you come into the church of God, the presence of God, your heart is, I want to be refreshed? You know, when we gather together, that is the purpose. I don't know how people make it. You know, people have, I've, I've talked, you know, when you're talking with unchurched people and, you know, for one reason or another, not going to church, and you ask them, so what church do you go to? And they say, well, none. And then they come back with us because you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Yeah, you know what? I didn't have to kiss my wife to be married either. Yeah, you're going to think about that one. You know, but, but I want to kiss my wife because I'm in love with my wife. We want to gather as a body of Christ because we're in love with Jesus. And I'm going to tell you this, and First Peter bears this out, because we have Philadelphia with one another. Amen? We want to, we love one another, even prickly pears, all of it, we love each other. Roses are awesome, but you know what comes with roses. And that's us, church. We come thorns and all, but we love one another. And because of that, we come and God's heart is to refresh us. I don't know how people do it. As a matter of fact, I'm going to venture to say they don't do it. They don't. When we gather together, I believe God wants to refresh your heart. So this morning, as your hearts are being refreshed through worship, may our hearts now again be refreshed through his word. Amen. <clears throat> story is told, and, and I'm going to come to a point in this story, and ladies, I'm going to tell you to close your ears. You'll find out why. Um, with this young man who has just like conquered the world, got the world by its tail, and he's earning big bucks, just bought this really super nice expensive BMW, and he's taking it back on, on the back roads of the country, and he's going around the curves, and all of a sudden when he comes around the sharp curves, he puts his foot on the brake, and it skids out from under him and starts doing 180s, and, or 360s rather, and it's out of control. He's coming to the brink of this... this um, embankment and before the car because he can't stop the car before it goes over the edge he opens the door and leaps out of the car ladies close your ears right now unfortunately some of you are closing your ears bold as he's jumping out of the car it grabs his arm and severs his arm from his body i told you to close your arms he makes it safely out of the car, and he does not go over the embankment like the car does, and he gets up and he runs to the edge of the embankment as it tumbles down and eventually hits the bottom and explodes into flames, and he's weeping, my car, my beautiful car. And about this time, a, a, a trucker who had seen the accident pulls over and says, buddy, are you okay? I think I need to get you to a hospital. And the guy says, huh, what? He says, your arm, you're missing your arm. And the guy the whole time is saying, my BMW, my BMW. And he says, you need to go to the hospital, look at your arm. And he looks down and he says, oh, no, I lost my Rolex. Truly, truly, when we are captured by the deception of wealth, it consumes our life perspective. It truly does. But it's not just wealth, it's so many other things. I remember some time ago, I was talking with a very wealthy man, very, very wealthy businessman. He owned many houses, 
and he talked to me about the houses. He owned a, a boat, talked to me, showed me pictures of the boat, talked, showed me about you know partying on the boat and just how much fun they have and the cruises that he goes on and the vacations anytime he wants. And his entire life was summed up in the stuff of this world. Now, here's my question. What happens when that man dies? He loses it all. Not one thing will he take with him. And he would have been successful for maybe 30 years, maybe 20 years before that time in which he dies, in which he gets to throw himself into the fun stuff and the pleasures of this world. And then what? And then what? The end of his life, that's it. He doesn't take any of it with him. And he then spends an eternity regretting the very fact, Jesus put it this way, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And this man's life was consumed by the abundance of his possessions and wanted to let me know everything that he owned and how much fun he had. I don't know, maybe to mask the emptiness inside. Truly, I don't know. But I'm going to guarantee anyone outside of Christ will be this way, consumed by something other than Jesus. Today, I want to talk about a values reset. And, and, and this is necessary even for Christians. When we come out of the world, God doesn't completely reset. Our, now, by reset, let, let me explain what I mean by that. By reset, understand God created Adam in a perfect world, in perfect relationship and harmony with God. Adam blew it. Adam blew it. And because Adam blew it, this curse upon the world is something that is like a cancer and it infects us and affects us. Consequently, our values from that time of the gar in the garden on get skewed. We get consumed by the things of this world. We start valuing things that God truly does not place high value on. It's not that God doesn't value money, but money is a means to an end. We get caught up in the things that really do not matter in this life. Every Christian needs a values reset. When there are so many bugs in a computer, and I say, Brian, what do I got to do? He says, wipe it clean and start over. God needs to reset our values. Peter talks about a values reset in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I want us to discover what that reset is and how can we, even as Christians, experience this values reset? Because it is not hard at all to start looking at the stuff of the world and what money can buy and get consumed with everything in this world. And Peter says, don't do that. Keep your focus where it needs to be. Don't get distracted. First Peter chapter 4, a values reset. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with this same attitude. And I want you to underline that phrase, same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin or has ceased from sin. We're going to come back to that. That's an intriguing phrase there. 
Verse 2, as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desire. See, that's the values reset. That's not what he lives for, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not Excuse me, that you do not plunge with them in the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Underline that sentence. Would you do that? The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hmm. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things, church, this is, this is the sum total, this is the goal, so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Church, say that with me. Amen. That is our goal, the glory of God. Remember when we were going through Romans, we talked about maximizing God's glory. That is our chief end. That is what the consummation of the ages is rushing toward, the glory of God and, and how he manifests that glory. When we were singing this song, I want to experience his glory. Church, do you realize that when you experience God's glory, you experience every facet and nuance of who God is? See, that's why I want to experience his glory. I don't want to just know about it theologically. I don't want to just think about it, though that's awesome to think about it. I want to experience his glory. And to that end, God's glory, I will choose to live my life. That is my values reset. Earlier in verse 1 or 2, it says he, it's, it's the will of God. But you see, when you do the will of God, it brings glory to God. God is who he is to be glorified. That is the nature of God. Not me. I can't handle that. Not you. You can't handle that either. Don't think you can. When men start glorifying you, and I'm going to come to a story today in which one was, man, did he lose his way. You weren't wired to be glorified. God is. That is who God is. You were wired to be the glory giver. He's the glory receiver. We're the glory giver. Now, the problem comes when these values and these goals and purposes in life get skewed, get all messed up, lead us astray. That's what I want to talk about. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I want to ask you, what do you value in life? What's really important in and here's how you're going to know. 
You can say, I value family, but if you never spend time with family, I seriously doubt you value family. If you say you value evangelism, but you never evangelize, guess what? If you say you value success, but you're not willing to sacrifice for success, I doubt you value success. Okay? If you say you value the things of God, but live for the world, I seriously doubt that you value the things of God. So what you do, how you live your life, how you speak, that's going to let me know, that's going to let people know what you truly value. So what do you value? What is really important in this life? As we look at verse 1 here, chapter 4, it says that Christ's suffering armed himself with an attitude, a mindset. Literally, this is mindset. It actually goes back to verse 18. Verses 19 through 22 of chapter 3 is somewhat parenthetical. That means it's, it's a side note, an important side note to teach something, but a side note nevertheless. Peter then goes back to Christ's suffering of verse 18. So let me read chapter 3, verse 18. He says this, for Christ died for sins. That is how extensive his suffering was. Okay, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive, excuse me, but made alive by the Spirit. Now, as we move through this chapter, I think we'll make a mistake if when we come to this phrase in verse 1, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin, to interpret that suffer in his body literally as suffer in the flesh. Some have, I believe, misunderstood this to mean crucify the flesh. If you crucify the flesh, you're done with sin. Well, that seems to make sense. I just think that misses the mark because the purpose here, the idea is not the crucifying of the flesh, though there are hints of that obviously throughout this when you ever you talk about a values reset, but he is talking about persecution here. That's what Jesus endured. This is taking us back to verse 18, chapter 3, in which Jesus suffered, but he suffered to the point of death. He was persecuted for what he believed, what he spoke, what he did, and who he was, the king of the Jews, savior of the world, son of man, coming in the clouds at the consummation of the ages. This was blasphemy, put him to death. So Jesus was persecuted for who he, uh, who he was, what he believed, what he taught, what he, even the miracles. Because some of those miracles, you remember, he did on the Sabbath. Crucify this guy. So Jesus suffered even to the point of death. But what man did in putting him to death, God accomplished for yours and my salvation, right? Now, if Jesus suffered this way, we then will suffer that way as well. So he's not talking about crucifying the flesh. He's talking about, hey, you know, as Jesus was persecuted, so you're going to be persecuted. So how is it that by being persecuted, we're done with sin? Here's something that's very important. In my translation, and I believe the NASB, I'm not sure about others, it, trans, it uses this word because. And that's a fair translation of this Greek word, haughty, because. But it's not always translated that way. And in this context, I'm going to suggest 
a, a, a viable option. You can look this up if you know how to do that, but a very viable option in translating this is the word that. Now let me read this to you with that, literally, in mind. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude that he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Do you see how that reads differently? What Peter is getting at here is he who has suffered in the body is done with sin or has ceased from sin. That is the mindset. He says, I want you to have this mindset in you. And, And church, when you get this mindset, that helps you with the values reset. Here's the mindset. If I suffer, I'm going to do so for Christ. And if I'm going to do that, I have to ask, why? Why would you suffer for Christ? Here you are. You're living for Jesus in your office, in the, in your, at your place of business. You're actually witnessing to customers, and you're shining your light, and people start ridiculing you. People start making fun of you. Yeah, you're just a holier than thou. Uh, they start calling you Jesus freak. They start saying, you know what? I don't know why you live this way, but man, I have so much fun getting drunk on the weekends. Really? Tell me about it. uh, Give me a minute. I just can't remember. Sounds like you had a lot of fun. And they brag about all of their sin, but the truth is, I am going to represent Christ. Now, I'm going to make a choice right now. I can do one of two things. I may not like this persecution, And so I may cease from being a witness for Christ or I'm going to step into this thing deeper. I'm going to pursue Jesus. I'm going to let my light shine even brighter. You have just made a choice to live for Jesus. And the reason why they're pointing this stuff out is because they see that you are righteous and they don't like it. You don't, you don't go with them Uh, How how does he put it? Um, You don't plunge with them in the same flood of dissipation. Wow, what does that mean? A plunge and flood. I like the way that plays off each other. Same flood of dissipation. Wow, what a word. Write that one down. You're going to have to look that one up. No, dissipation is this this debauchery. It's the carousing. It's the, hey, man, let's get together and let's get drunk on the weekend and forget all of our troubles. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and it's the skewed values of the world. You're not valuing what we value anymore because I'm sold out for Jesus. And so when they persecute you, here's your decision. I will either back away from this Jesus or I'm going to run to him all the more. And so Peter is saying this. Let this mindset be in you. I will live for Jesus all the more, and he's saying this, that when you're living for Jesus all the more and you're running after him, guess what you've turned your back on? Yep, that same flood of dissipation. That lifestyle of sin that you used to run after and run with the boys with Friday nights, you're not going there. You're done with sin. So do you see, that's the mindset. It's not the reality. Tell you what, when you are persecuted from Christ, you will not suddenly stop sinning. No, this is a mindset. I want you to have this mindset. It's the same mindset Jesus said, or Jesus had, that, hey, I am pursuing this relationship with God, being the Son of God, okay, pursuing this relationship with my Father, and forget about sin. Have that same mindset. 
persecution brings you to that place of decision. What am I going to do? Who am I going to follow? Am I going to listen to this voice over here that's just a distraction and an allurement? And wow, look at all these pictures of the boat and how much fun they're having and all of the houses that this guy made. I want that. And it begins to lure us. And I tell you what, if it lures you, it will suck the life out of you. Or you can make this decision, you know what? I'm pursuing Jesus. That is what my life is all about. You see, the persecution forces you into this, let let me word it this way, into a polarized decision. Either on the one extreme, pursuing the world, because, hey, that's going to quiet them, or pursuing Christ, and in pursuing Christ, I am done with sin. That's the mindset. That's the mindset. This is the mindset, he says, that I want you to have. I want you to have this values reset. And this is what persecution will do. (laughs) Persecution in Peter's day was a little bit more horrendous than the persecution in our day. I'm not sure too many people in America have been beheaded for their faith. Not lately, anyway. Not sure too many of them have been crucified upside down, at least not recently that I've read in the newspaper. I'm not sure how many have been brought before a judge because they have testified for Christ, though there are some. Fire chief in Atlanta, was it, who wrote a book, and that book exploded in in the government arena. And oh my goodness, because you're a government official, how dare you talk about being a Christian on your own time, emphasis. So they fired him. Yeah, there there are those types of persecution. And the more the persecution happens, it will cause you to do one of two things. It'll force you to make that choice. So here's my question. If you're going to shine for Jesus, if you're going to live for him, regardless of the persecution, well, excuse me, let me back. If, if you're going to choose not to live that way, that's what I meant to say. If you're going to choose not to live that way, why? What are you going to do? Here's how Christians can choose to live their life. Instead of having that mindset that Peter tells us to have, we can compromise in this way. You know what? Maybe I'll start talking like the world and fit in a little better. You know what I'm talking about, the jokes that go on, the words that they use, the cursing, the swearing, the, you know, talking the way they talk because you you don't want to feel like the odd man out anymore. And so you start looking like them, talking like them, walking like them, right? Or you say, you know what? I will never talk about Jesus anymore. And that persecution will shut you up. See, this is what Christians face every single day. You may not face a cross upside down or your head coming off, but you will be forced to make that decision. Will I choose to look like them and behave like them? Or will I pursue Jesus all the more? Maybe you come to this decision and you say, you know what, I'm going to be open-minded just like them. I'm going to be tolerant of sinful lifestyles and other religious beliefs, which are simply lies. I'm going to to tolerate all of that. 
I'm not going to judge others. Now, what I mean by that is not going around saying, you know what, you need to stop doing this sin and stop doing this sin. And you know what, I'm tired of all of this sin, sin, sin in this office. I doubt that's going to help. As, as a leader, if you've ever been in leadership, it is irksome, difficult to deal with people who want so much to point out the problems and never give solutions. Not helpful. Most leaders can see the problem. Sometimes they don't. Most leaders, though, can see the problem. What they're really looking for is the solution. So thank you very much if you point out the problem, but I really want a solution. Okay? And so by judging others, by judging others, I don't mean going around pointing out their sin without pointing to the cross. A crossless correction has no power whatsoever. Let me say that one more time. A crossless correction has no power in your witness. None. It is when they are aware of their sin and you offer them Jesus. And when you share with them their sin, you do so in love, but you point them to Jesus. That is a Christ-filled correction. It's just that many times Christians, we get into this habit, yeah, I don't like that, and can you please not cuss, and you, can you please not do this, and don't do that, and what are you looking at that for, and, and all of and we never are offering them Jesus. Why should I tell a non-Christian to start acting like a Christian? Did you hear me? Yeah. They're, they're, they have no power. They're lost in their sin. And I can understand for the atmosphere of the office, and so I'm not addressing that. But So when we are judging others, I am not talking about that, but I am saying, hey, Scripture says don't hypocritically judge, but did you realize it actually calls us to judge? 1 Corinthians 6. The problem in the Corinthian church is that they weren't doing that. They saw sin and, and they were tolerant of other alternative lifestyles. You want to have sex with your mother-in-law or, or, or stepmom? You know, that's fine. We're not going to say anything about that. That's your personal choice. No, and he says, you need to judge that sin so that the man can be corrected and start living for Jesus in righteousness. So it is so easy for us when we hear this, so stop judging me, you just, you're just judging me, you're just judging me. You, you know what? Then I'm not going to say anything and I'm going to have you read these scripture passages and I'll let God judge you. I, I, I'm just trying to help out here and trying to help you see that you are in desperate need of a savior called Jesus. All right, we can also um, just stop saying or doing anything that might offend others. But persecution will force you into one of those two decisions. The devil wants you quiet. He wants to persecute you. The world wants to squeeze you into its mold. That's the devil's intention. Every one of you who's a believer, a disciple, a follower of Jesus this morning, you got a bullseye on your back and you're in the crosshairs of the devil. He wants to take you down and take you out. And if he can't destroy your faith, then he's going to have you wander from it and he's going to seduce you with all of this junk that's in the world so that that's what you're consumed with and you are not consumed with Jesus himself anymore. Values reset. Values reset. 
So Paul, Peter's point is simply suffering for Christ forces that values reset. So I'm going to encourage you to step into that persecution and embrace it. Don't go around looking for it, asking for it. Just shine Jesus and you'll get it. Shine Jesus and you'll get it eventually. But we learn ever so subtly, the less I shine, the less people criticize me, I like that. That is not what Jesus valued on the cross. That is not what we value. Pursue God, as he says, the will of God. Do not live the rest of your earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Church, pursue the will of God at any cost. Don't get distracted by these things. Oh, there's nothing wrong with this, and th or this, or this, or this. And maybe on the surface there's not, but the more you pursue them, it will distract you and it will suck you in so that you will need a values reset. So, what do you value in life? What is really important to you? He says right here in verse 6, actually a very difficult verse to understand, probably the second most difficult in Peter's book here. The first one we came across last week, whew, that was a tough one. This one's, not too, this one's somewhat hard as well. <laughs> Because he says, <clears throat> for this reason, verse 6 right there, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that, though, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Now, there's a lot of parallelisms going on here. Judge is contrasted with live. According to men is contrasted with according to God. And in the body is contrasted with in the spirit. And so you have three contrasts here. And let me just sum up by saying this. Because you are in Adam, God, who is the judge of the living and the dead, has already rendered a verdict. The soul that sins, it shall die. You one day will die. You're, you're going to die. It, it is inevitable. You cannot stop it. I don't care what science may provide or what someone's... Uh, fountain of youth, they might offer it, ain't going to happen, not going to preserve your life, you will die. God bless you if you live 70, 80, 90, especially 100 years, God bless you. But you're going to die one day. And that judgment has already been rendered. Because we're in Adam, we will die. We've inherited his human nature, we have inherited his sinful nature, and the judgment upon that. We're going to die. God is our judge, according to men, in the body, that judgment is death. But we have this opportunity that even though the body dies, our spirit can live. And it can, it, it, remember, this, is, this, this construction is very similar to the one that we saw in chapter 3, verse 19. Very similar, by the way. But he's saying spiritually, according to God, you are going to come to life. Actually, you are going to live with, with life, even as God has life, he's the source of that life. He wants to breathe that life. And I'm not sure if he's talking about you will live the moment that your body dies and, and, 
or if you're going to live the moment that you accept Christ. Regardless, you are living for Jesus. Romans 8.10, Paul says something very similar there. You don't need to turn there, but I'm going to, I'm going to quickly read it to you. Romans 8, verse 10. Uh, I believe Paul has this very same thought in his mind when he says this. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And that righteousness is, is there in us, like this life by his spirit. The spirit of God is in you, and he's reproducing that life of God in you. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is your goal is to live for Jesus. Now, verse 7, he continues on with this, except he, he doesn't speak about uh, suffering. Now he says, the end of all things is near. Now, I'm going to suggest that that needs to be a mindset because the truth is, Peter was saying the end of all things is near and they didn't experience the end of all things. But when you have this mindset that the end of all things is near, Jesus is coming back and he may very well do so in my day, I may not be able to play out these days of my life to their very end so that I die, but I, Christ may come back tomorrow. And that needs to be your mindset. Because when your mindset is, the, is like that, it's going to have the same effect, and it's going to force you to make this choice. How am I going to live my life? And, and, and even before that question, it's what am I going to truly value? Because whatever you value, that's what you're going to both believe, say, and do. That is whatever your values are. Your values are the basis for your entire life. You will make every decision in your life based on what you truly value, what's really important to you. Okay? And so by, by bringing this up, he's, he's touching on this values reset once again. And I'm going to suggest he touches on three things. First thing he touches on is prayer. And we're going to see how important prayer is in this values reset. Then he talks about love. And coupled with that, hospitality. And that, too, becomes integral in this values reset. And then lastly, I'm going to word it this way. That God is making you a grace dispenser. A grace dispenser. Whether it's by speaking or serving, you are dispensing God's grace through the gifts, talents, passions in your life, but by God's grace will be flowing through you. So let's, let's tackle that because these are going to be important. We're talking about this when you're, when you're being persecuted. We're talking about the end of the age. Christ will be coming back. Both of these things force a values reset. And once you were set the, in that, that values, these three things that I'm going to touch on briefly because I don't have much time to do else, the more you do these things, it's like a cycle. You're going to find the more that you pray, it resets your values. When you reset your values, you pray more, and it's like a cycle, and it builds on itself. Same thing with love, same thing with being a grace dispenser. So let's, let's tackle them real quickly here. <clears throat> Excuse me, well, here we go, here we go, all right. He says here, the end of all things is near, therefore, and he uses two words, be clear-minded, that's one verb, and be self-controlled. I want to look at those two because they're very important because he says, if you do these things, then you will be able to pray. 
Isn't that what he says here? Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Now, this first word, interesting, being clear-minded, it means don't allow your thinking to be improperly influenced. And it has a, a smattering of this concept of sobriety. Both of these words actually do, but they're different. This one is used in Luke 8, 35. Now, in that particular event, Jesus and his disciples come across what is known as the gathering demoniac. This guy is like he's high on drugs. He is demonized, not with one or two or 10 or 20 or even 100 demons, but apparently, if it's not being figurative, thousands of demons. He breaks chains. He runs up to Jesus as soon as they land. I'm only thinking that as the disciples, oh my goodness, what is this guy going to do? Let's get back in the boat. But by the time he gets there, he hits the deck. And God deals with this man. Jesus deals with this man. Jesus sets him free. He casts the demons out. You remember the story, into the pigs who run off of the bank and drown into the lake. This man is totally demonized. Who is this man influenced by? Satan, demons, totally influenced. When he is set free, this is what it says, says about him, that he, when the, the villagers came, they saw him sitting in his right mind. That's this word right here, in his right mind, thinking clearly. Not influenced by the demons anymore, but influenced with clear thinking. I have been healed by this amazing man of God. Who is he? That's what consumed his thoughts. Now, he was influenced, not by these demons, but he was influenced by the power of Jesus Christ. That is right thinking. That is being in his right mind. That is, as Peter says, be clear-minded. So what is going to be influencing you? In this values reset, it's now the values of God. That influences me. I want to follow Jesus. The second one, it says, be self-controlled. This actually means to think soberly. Think soberly. It's actually used three times in this book. The first one we saw in chapter 1, verse 13, and I will reread it for you. It says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. And we saw that that self-control had a lot to do with our emotions. Because we're talking about suffering and suffering. I mean, how many of you woke up this morning praying, oh God, let me suffer today? We want to avoid that kind of stuff. It impacts us with fear. We want to run from it. And, and, and Peter says, nothing doing. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be prepared for action. Put to death those emotions that are working against right action. And that's what he's saying here. You can also find this word in chapter 5, verse 8. We are not to be controlled by the cares of this world. Because the devil, he's looking around seeking to devour you. Bullseye on your back. He wants to devour you. Now, when we equip ourselves with this right mindset, when we start thinking in our right mind, when we start thinking so soberly, coming to our senses, that's another way of that this is, word is used in the New Testament, coming to our senses, 
This is going to equip us to pray. So how many of you have ever found that when you stepped into a season of burdening prayer, God did something in your heart? Have you ever experienced that type of prayer that the more you prayed, it's as if God is changing you, not just hearing your prayers and answering them. He's changing you because prayer, listen to this, prayer exercises your faith. And that's, that, that's the a main theme that runs through First Peter. That's why I'm titling it A Fiery Faith, this series going through First Peter. It is about faith and the suffering, this the prayer itself is going to work out your faith. It's like a it's like a faith muscle. You're going to go to Lord's gym and you're going to work out your faith muscle and it's going to get stronger and you're going to be able to lift more weights, you're going to be able to pray longer, you're going to be able to see more things happen and when you do this, guess what's happening? Your faith is getting stronger so that you can pray more, so that we can see global revi- revival. How about that? You see we want to see change in our lives. Right here, guys. Value reset. Think soberly. Think clearly. Don't be influenced by the stuff of the world. Values reset. And that's going to enable me to pray. And when you pray, it, it's like this, this domino effect. The more you pray, the stronger your faith. The stronger your faith, the more you pray. The more you pray, the, you get the idea. And this is what Peter is saying, step into this spiritual, amazing uh, cycle of, of spiritual maturity, spiritual growth. But it's got to start with a values reset. Second thing now, he gets into love. Now, we've already talked about forgiveness, and he touches on that. Love covers a multitude of sins. And so I'm only going to say this. Church, a couple of weeks ago when I touched on this, and God spoke to your heart. Maybe that you need to forgive someone. Have you done that? Or do you keep rehearsing their offense over and over in your mind? Playing it. And it impacts you emotionally. It will. If you replay it, that event, the hurt, you're going to feed it. Cancel the debt. That's all I'm going to say about that. I'm going to remind you, cancel the debt. Be done with it. Let it go. It's an, event, it, it's, it's an offense that if you nurture it, it will grow and become bitterness and unforgiveness, and it will consume you. Love covers a multitude of sins. And I'm going to tell you what, if you're wanting to do the will of God and pursue him, and he's saying persecution will do that, the end of all things, that will bring you to that place. You want to just totally cause this working of God in your life to shut down, be bitter. Hold an offense against another person. That will shut you down spiritually faster than anything I know. Let's move on. He talks about hospitality here. Interesting. Hospitality. It actually means love of strangers. A lot of our our hospitality doesn't necessarily include strangers, at least in my home. Um, and so this word actually means to practice this having people into your home or bringing refreshment to people. And we see it initially in, in the book of Acts taking place in the church. Write this down, Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4. We're not going to look into those. We've done that, especially when we went through the book of Acts. 
but here is what you see. You see a picture of the body of Christ practicing the ho- practicing hospitality together. It's like all the time. They shared all things. That's that Greek word koinos from koinonia. Maybe you've heard that tossed around. Some bands called koinonia. And, and koinonia is just one of those Christianized words that we use in our English language. Yeah, koinonia means fellowship, means shared in common. And that's what the church did. By having fellowship, it was because they shared all things in common. If you were in need, well, come into my home. I've got plenty of stuff. Look in the pantry. It's there. It's for you. And they shared as each had need. So that, listen to this, so that there were no needy among them. Isn't that amazing? You see, that's how the early church practiced love. Now, the truth is, not all of us have a home. My daughter, Juliana, she doesn't have a, a home. Well, she kind of does, okay? She lives with us, but it's not her home. But she, she, she pitches in for the upkeep of the household and groceries and shops and helps with dishes and chores, et cetera, et cetera. But here's one thing about Juliana. Even though she, she can have friends over, and she does, but she practices hospitality in another way. She is one of the most generous young ladies that I know. And God has blessed her with a good job at Verizon, and she seeks to bless others with what she has brought in. She works hard. She is, oh, By the way, she has just gotten a promotion with a pay raise. That's awesome. She just heard about that while she was away last week. Um, and that's been incoming. So, and, and I'm going to tell you what, if she were here, uh, she wouldn't tell you this, but she would anyway, but she was probably going to just say, well, that's more that God has blessed me financially to sow into the people of God. Because I'm going to encourage you, you want to practice hospitality, hospitality, then you need to have that generous mindset that what's mine is yours. And I'm just going to share with you. And if there's a need, I, you don't need to know who's given. I'm going to give it. Here's a hundred bucks here, or a thousand here, or however I can help and bless. That that that's that's in my daughter's nature to do that. I, I think she learned it from her mom. Because my wife is compassionate and loves people, practices hospitality. Juliana grew up with this, and that is who she is. She is her mother's daughter. I like to think maybe it had a little bit to do with it, but I'm going to defer. I am sure she learned it all from her mom. But the truth is, you, if you're single, you may not have a home that you can just invite whoever into, though maybe mom and dad says, sure, fine. But you can at least be generous. Now let me talk about another gener- way to be generous in giving that he concludes with, and that is being a grace dispenser. As I said, being a grace dispenser means that God's grace flows through you to touch and impact other people. And I'm going to tell you this, that if your life is consumed with that mindset of how to live in which you're constantly giving and sowing and speaking truth and speaking words of love to encourage, if you are serving and giving yourself away, you will be known as great in the kingdom of God. You may never be used as an example from a pulpit. You may never. But I tell you this, the angels will talk about you. They will talk about you. 
you will be considered greatest in the kingdom of God. Why? Because you are a dispenser of God's grace. Your whole consuming passion is wrapped up in verse 11, the glory of God. That is what I am living. I'm going to do the will of God for the glory of God. I'm going to seek to maximize his glory. I am living for Jesus and only for Jesus. And if I lose my life doing it, then I will truly find life. That is the consuming passion. That is a values reset. What are you living for? You know what? When, if you have a bare wire, like an electric fence, and you run a current through that wire, how many of you have ever touched an electrified wire before? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of Jurassic Park when he's up there and he gets... All right. But I tell you what, when I, I was a kid, and I just, what is this wire? You know, and wow. My arm just did not want to let go of that, and I don't think it's because it enjoyed it. But it, I'm going to tell you this. When God's grace flows through you, you become a different person. You are empowered, electrified, if you will. God works through you. And you might think, well, you know what? I'm just going to do this, and I'm going to help and serve and bless people. But when you're doing it, and the grace of God is flowing through you, it empowers that, and you become a high-impact person in the kingdom of God. I'm going to tell you this again. You will be known as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because you chose, I'm going to live like this for the will of God, for the glory of God. I'm going to have a values reset. I'm going to think differently now. I'm not going to be distracted by the things of the world. I'm going to let God live through me, speaking, serving, speaking as if it was the words of God. And, and I tell you what, if that is your heart, say, God, please use me right now. You're in a life group. Please use me right now. I want to, I want to just speak from your heart. And you open your mouth, and God is going to speak through you. When you serve, Paul says it this way, I labor with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I, I have done things with my business as much as I could. I tried to do it right, and it fell apart. And the next time I, I had to do this, it's a customer vehicle. It has this one. This one has to turn out perfect. Same weather conditions that got garbage in the last bumper. I've got to spray it. I can't wait till tomorrow. I've got to do it right now. And the winds are kicking at 17 miles an hour. That is not good. And I remember as I prayed, and it's a black vehicle. Oh, I'm cringing thinking about it. And I just prayed. I said, you know what, Lord? I got to spray this bumper. I have to do it. And I'm going to do the very best I can. Everything else is in your hands. I cannot get garbage in this bumper. I sprayed it. I'm done. I look at it. My mouth drops. I could not see any garbage at all. It's like a little Holy Spirit bubble right there. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I was amazed. And my point is, if you're going to serve God, do it with all his energy, which so powerfully works in. And when he does that, you're going to step back and say, whoa, that wasn't me. That was God. Because when the grace of God is dispensed through you, it does something to you. It, it changes your mindset. It empowers you. It builds your faith. It electrifies you. And the people you minister to will be touched. Because that's the nature of the grace of God. So, 
I'm going to ask you. Today, do you need a values reset? Do you need to re-evaluate your values? Because whatever you value, whatever is really important to you, that's going to be the way you live. Are you going to live for Jesus? That's all I want to ask you. Are you going to live for Jesus? And so this morning, I'm going to ask you, you can turn the lights out, Jim. If you want to live for Jesus, I just want you to stand with me right now. If you want to live for Jesus and you want to be consumed with this desire to bring glory to God, let's stand. I want to pray for you. Don't back away from persecution, church. Let it come. I'm not saying pray for it, but let it come. It's going to force you to make that decision. I will follow Jesus. The end of all things is near. Let that force you to make that decision. I am going to pursue Jesus. So if you want to pursue Jesus, let me pray for you. Father, I want to thank you that you are good. Your grace knows no end. You are amazing in this grace of yours, God. You truly do desire to change us. And I'm just saying, God, would you forgive me when I've gotten distracted? When my heart's desire was not where it needed to be. When I began to want the things of this world a whole lot more than I should. My focus shifted. Would you forgive me for that, God? Give us that values reset. Give us the heart of Jesus that when he suffered, he said, forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. When he suffered, he said, so be it. And therefore, fulfill the will of God. He was all about doing it. Not my will, but yours. God, that's what we want. Help us, Lord. Help us not to be distracted. Help us to be focused singularly, God, on this one consuming passion to know Jesus and follow him and glorify him. That's it. That's all that we want, God. So, Father, this thing in our life that's distracting us, that's pulling us further and further away, we lay it down right now. We lay it down. It's at your altar. It's at the foot of the cross. crucified put it to death no more no more will it have a hold on you father we are about you and only you in jesus name we pray